When I was really young, I was probably in second grade, maybe third grade. I know it was the first part of elementary school because the family moved um, uh, after that. But uh, I had a friend who lived down the street, and I would go over to his his house in the afternoons and we'd play. Sometimes he'd come to mine. But one of the things is I kind of secretly envied him, or at least sort of envied him. I liked his house better. And, you know, one of the reasons was because it had a tree in the front yard. And so we would climb up in the tree and, you know, probably terrify parents who were watching. They're going to fall out and kill yourself or something. But but we did that kind of fun stuff that the boys will will do. And so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed some other things. He had a better backyard than ours. And um, just generally, uh, there were things I liked about going over to play at his house. He had better toys than mine, or or in hindsight, probably they weren't better, but they were different. And so that, that gave me an effective uh, number of toys. It kind of doubled my number of toys. So it felt like like I liked his toys better. Um, and and so I, I kind of envied him. I, I didn't fully envy him, but I but I kind of envied him. And um, the reason the reason I didn't fully envy him is because because I, I was aware of some other things that were different about his life than mine. One of them was that he had to do more chores. Their house was was typically cleaner than ours, and um, so part of it was that there was just a, some pretty rigorous policing of of the cleaning of the house, and not not much slack like we had in my house. So I didn't I didn't fancy that. But in particular, the thing that I really didn't want was um, he had to practice the piano every day after school. He had to practice the piano for. I don't know, half an hour or an hour. It seemed like all afternoon. So I'd be hanging around kind of waiting for, waiting for him to finish. And you know, uh, I know somewhere in that house he's playing the piano and I hope he finishes soon because then we can play. So, so, um, I knew that part of the deal with, with his family was that, was that he would have to, to, to play the piano every day. And that was something I thought, you know, well, I don't really envy him that. So it was kind of a mixed bag, but there were things I did envy. We are we are having a conversation right now about um, the the first letter that Paul wrote to a church in a in a Greek town called Thessalonica, and so it's called First Thessalonians. And uh, in it, uh, Paul does what he what he often does. He he had been in that town sometime earlier, a couple of months or maybe a year earlier. He'd planted this church um, from from a group of people who were were uh, Gentiles before that. They they had only known the Greek religion. Uh, the different Greek religions. And so they didn't know anything about Judaism. They didn't know anything about Christianity. Paul planted the church. And then after he moved on, he, he kept in touch with them by letters. And, and Paul did that pretty typically with, uh, the churches that he planted around the Mediterranean Rim. And, um, uh, we don't know how many letters he wrote, but we do know he wrote at least 13 because 13 of them were were preserved by the, those churches that they that they read them and reread them and then when they wore out they made copies and then they began to circulate the copies among other churches and over the next couple of uh, centuries over about 200 years those letters uh were recognized as as um not just Paul writing but really God speaking through Paul and so uh when when the church began to think about what are our holy books they they included those those letters in the collection of documents that we call the the New Testament, so so Paul wrote a, a bunch of letters. He he certainly wrote thirteen because we still have those. And First Thessalonians is interesting because as scholars tell us it was probably the first one that Paul wrote. It was probably written in fifty or maybe fifty one A.D. So it's a very early picture of uh, what the what the uh, 
Christian faith believes about Jesus and about, about the, the church that Jesus started. And one of the things that Paul says throughout this letter is he says that the church is, is like a family. So Paul, Paul says that, that, uh, that when you become part of the community of the disciples of Jesus, you're not just students at a school, you are actually children of the family of God, that Jesus Jesus has arranged for us to be adopted into the family of the children of God. And so uh, today what we're going to look at is, uh, if that's the case, what does that mean? What, what kind of family is it? it what are the... What are the um, what are the rules of that family? You know, do, do you have to practice the piano? You know, that's, that's the question we're looking at. What, what are the rules of this family? Um, and so if you're a Christian, you know, already this should be review for you, but, but maybe, maybe there's something in here that will be a good reminder for you. But if you're not a Christian, you know, you should be thinking to yourself, do I, do I really want to be a part of that, that family? Because there are some things that, that come with the territory. The same way my, my, uh, friend in school had, um, had to play the piano, that there are rules that come with this particular family. So that's what we're going to be doing is looking at the, the family of the children of God, the family that Paul has been talking about. What is it like to be a part of that family? So, so, um, in your scriptures, we are looking at, um, chapter four, uh, Paul, we, 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 um, we are joining, you know, you're, if you weren't here for the first two, uh, um, parts of this conversation, you can listen online. But Paul has been talking to the the people about his his um, uh, care for them. He's concerned because they they're going through some hard times. But um, we we pick it up now in chapter four, and Paul says um, this. He says, "So then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus to keep living the way you already are, and even do better in how you live and please God, just as you learn from us." So. Paul says, says, you're doing great. This is not, Paul's not criticizing them. He's saying, you're doing great. Um, you know, in, in difficult circumstances, you're doing very well. But, um, he's reminding them that, that this is not like getting on a team and you're wondering if you'll make the cut. Paul's saying, the standard is not, you know, the low bar. The standard is, is Jesus. Are you, are you living like Jesus? Because that is the, the goal we're, we're striving for. And Jesus said that the goal is perfection. He, he told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, he said, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So our goal is not to, you know, barely make the cut, but to be Christ-like, to be, uh, to whatever extent we can, like, like Christ. So he's saying, you're, you're doing great, but do even better. So, so do better in the way you are and, and in how you live and please God, just as you learn from us. And then he says, um, he tells us what the, what the rules of the family are. He says, you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He says, he says, we've talked about this before. You know what the rules are. You know if you have to play piano in this, in this house or, or in this, in this family. So he says, you know what the instructions are. What are they? Well, Jesus tells us that there are really only two. Jesus says that, that there's two, two rules. Uh, one is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other is to love our neighbor as ourself. So just love of God, love of neighbor. Those are the two rules. And so Paul is going to flesh that out a little bit. He begins by saying, he talking about um, love of God. So verse 3, he says, God's will is that your lives are dedicated to him. 
So what, what does, what does that mean? Um, I actually like this translation. It's got a little footnote and it says what most translations do. Most translations don't go any further. They just say, they say, God desires that you be holy or that you be sanctified. And that's really not much of a translation because who knows what those words mean? They're church words and, and, you know, you know, we never, we never tell somebody that they're holy. We never tell somebody they're sanctified. They're only used inside the church. And so I think a lot of us aren't really clear on what it means. So they say, your lives dedicated to him. And that's actually what the, what the word holy, the word sanctified means. It means, it means set apart for God. And the idea here is that you are, you are dedicated. You're committed to, to God. Um, we, we use, we use the word dedicated a lot. You, you talk about a dedicated employee. Or you talk about somebody who's like a dedicated motorcycle enthusiast. And so you know what they're going to be doing. They, they, they rearrange their life so that, so they can concentrate in the things that they want to do. So they're, they're dedicated to their work. You know, they're probably staying late and getting in early, um, coming in on weekends. Uh, whereas the motorcycle enthusiast, he's dedicated to riding or maybe fixing up his bike or whatever it is. Um, that you can tell what they're doing because they've arranged their life around that thing to keep it at the center of the life. So, so when Paul says to be holy or to be sanctified, he's saying exactly what our translation says is that your life is dedicated to this thing. You have made a commitment to, to this thing and you've kind of rearranged your life around it. So, so Paul says that that's what God, um, wishes from you. That's how you love God is by doing what he wishes is by is by arranging your life around him because you're committed to him. So, so that's, uh, that's the first rule, love of God. What about the second rule? He says, well, it has an implication. This means you stay away from sexual immorality and learn how to control your own body in a pure and respectable way. So Paul says the, the first part is love of God. The second part is love of neighbor. And what, what that means is you treat other people like they are also children of God. He says, he says that, that our, our, um, that the people we meet are loved by God the same way we are. And therefore we have to assume that they are children of God. And so we would treat them the same way that, that God would, would have, have us treat them, that, that we would treat them the way that, that God would want his children treated. So he, he, uh, teases out a little bit what that what that means. He says, um, you stay away from sexual, verse um, 3, uh, you stay away from sexual immorality, and verse 4, you learn how to control your own body in a pure and respectable way. So what does he mean by that? Well, you know, it's pretty straightforward to understand. There's nothing really too complicated about that, um, particularly since he says you learn how to do this, right? He's saying that that he understands, you know, the flesh is weak and we make mistakes. We get tripped up. You know, we get blindsided. We didn't see something coming and then suddenly we were in over our heads. Paul, Paul says you need to learn how to avoid those situations. You need to learn how not to be controlled by your body. He says, he says, this is, this is something that God wants you to do. And, and really as far as that goes, Paul, Paul is, uh, saying things that, that the pagans would have heard from, from some of their philosophers. Plato, for example, uh, the the Greek philosopher Plato, he said that uh, that the um, that pleasure and pain were both evils because because they kind of overpowered 
your will, that you wanted to do this thing, but because it was pleasurable or because it was painful, um, that that these things were evils and they kept you from doing the thing that you wanted to do. And so, so uh, the the culture that Paul was was talking to, they would have said, "Well, I've heard that before," um, but but Paul is saying, "And you need to learn how to do that. It's not something you can just kind of you know you know concentrate and." And you've got the willpower immediately to do it. In fact, Paul never says self-control. He says you need to learn how to control because because you may need you may need help. You may need to be part of a community of people who will who will support you as you try to do the things that you want to do. So Paul doesn't say self-control, and that would have been a little bit different from what uh, some of the pagan philosophers would have said. But he says you need to learn to control your own body. But Paul says more than that. The, the the pagan philosophers would have said, okay, I get that part. But Paul is using the language here in a way that that has two different meanings. Um, the 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 first meaning is is what 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 our translation says, control your own body. But literally, what the what the phrase is that Paul uses is he says to acquire a vessel. So, what he means by that is if you think of if you think of the the image that they would have used in those days, a very comfortable image for them would have been that that we're like the, uh, that our will, our reason, our intellect, um, is like, is like the rider of a chariot. And I've got some horses in front of me and, and, you know, I'm in a little cart thing and, and, um, it's pulling. And if I'm not, if I don't know how to control them, they will get away from me. So that's kind of a, a, a comfortable image people would have had the idea of a chariot in a rider, uh, a rider in a chariot. So, so, uh, Paul's saying that you need to acquire a vessel. The vessel is the chariot, you know, the thing that you're riding around in. So your body, you need to control your body. You need to gain control of this chariot. So that's the one meaning. That's why our our translation says that. But there's a second meaning that that would have been um, also uh, uh, clear to people. And he, uh, when he says to acquire a vessel, what he means by that is to put your your emotional and sexual eggs in one basket. Because, because the idea is that people have all kinds of, of desires relating to sex and relationships. That, that they have just plain physical desires. That they, they want, you know, sexual gratification of some kind. But they have other desires as well. They want to, maybe they want to have children. They want uh, intimacy with some kind of uh, a partner. They want Companionship. That there's a bunch of there's a whole cluster of things that people that people um, associate with with uh, sexual relationships. And what Paul is saying is put all those eggs in one basket. So uh, acquire that one relationship that you can put all that energy, all those urges, all those desires, all those hopes and dreams into the one basket. And so so what he's saying, and, and so other translations will sometimes have a footnote that says get married. You know, acquire a spouse, and the reason for that is because is because then you will have that one vessel, that one basket in which you put all your emotional um, eggs, and um, and for us to really kind of understand that, I think it helps to realize that in that culture, that there were there were other signals that were coming very strongly through the culture, the the um, the the. The double standard was so so uh, uh, overt that you you didn't even notice it unless you were looking for it uh, because because in that culture uh, women had almost no agency around uh, re, uh, around sexual relationships that that they were pretty much 
um, under the authority of somebody else. And the somebody else was almost always a man. So maybe it was their father, maybe it was their husband, uh, maybe if they had been widowed, it would have been some other man, a brother or a, a, um, a father-in-law or somebody else. But women had almost no agency. They didn't get to make decisions about sex. But men did have agency. And what the culture told men is that you put your, your emotional eggs in separate baskets. They said, they said, look, marriage is all about children. Marriage is about family. So yes, you do get married. Uh, you arrange an alliance between different families. Your family might have been the one that did the arranging. Um, but, but that's where you, you know, marriage is for children. Uh, marriage is for your family and the, the things that come out of different family arrangements, the, the alliances and so forth. So he says the, 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 the culture would have said that's what marriage is for. But if you want intimacy, if you want sexual gratification, if you want uh, companionship, if you want these other things, look elsewhere for those. And that would have been a very strong message from that culture. And, and really... You know, I, I could I could quote. There's a Roman poet named Horace, or, or um, a Greek uh, uh, named Demosthenes, whose whose writings still exist, and I could quote them. But honestly, because they are so alien to our culture, we would find them very disturbing. Because they say, you know, where you should go gratify your your desires, and we would find them disturbing. So instead of quoting them, I'm just going to say, use your own imagination. Pick somebody like um, a Harvey Weinstein or. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Cosby and say, okay, the same only more so. And that would have been the image that that culture would have, would have communicated to people is that, is that you have different, different outlets for different, um, goals. And what Paul says is he says, don't be controlled by your sexual urges like the Gentiles who don't know God. He says, why not? Because those sort of uh, urges are exploitative. Because all all that your urges care about is your urges. They, they don't care about the other person. They don't have any interest at all in the other person. They're just interested in, in you know, it's a part of you that's only interested in you. And he says, don't be like that. Don't be controlled by them like the Gentiles who don't know God. Why not? Verse 6, he says, no one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. He says, the Lord punishes people for all these things. As we told you before, and sternly warned you. He says, he says that the, to, if, if, if your only interest is what you can get out of the relationship, then that is exploitative. It doesn't matter if the other person is willing or unwilling, that it is still exploitative, that it's not, there, there's no mutuality in it. And so Paul says it's exploited. And he says, no one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. Remember, everybody is Presumably, you know, we, we don't know, but, but, uh, we know God loves everybody. And so we, we should treat them like they are children of God. So he says no one should take advantage of them. And then he says the Lord punishes people for all these things. The, the actual language here is the Lord is their avenger. The, there's, there's a preacher named Andy Stanley, uh, in Georgia and he talks about this this idea that the Lord is their avenger, and he says he says um, when when you go on a date, when you when you're in a relationship or trying you know trying to decide about a relationship with somebody, um, what you should do is you should picture God you know kind of coming coming out and waving you goodbye as you go go on your date, and he's saying he's saying okay you kids have fun, I'll just be sitting here on the porch polishing my shotgun. 
Only instead of, instead of a shotgun, it's God, so it's, you know, a shotgun that shoots lightning bolts or something. So, so he says, we need to have that image in mind because, because they are not, um, they, they are not helpless. They, they may be helpless to you, but they have an avenger. They are children of God. That, that the, the slave girl may not be able to resist anything you do, but, but she has an avenger. She is a child of God and God takes it very seriously the way you treat his children. So Paul says, the Lord punishes people who take advantage of a brother or sister in this issue. And then he wraps up this little piece. He says, God didn't call us to be immoral, but to be dedicated to him. Again, dedicated. This is something that maybe these these rules don't make sense to you, or maybe they're inconvenient, maybe they're difficult, but these are the family rules. If you're going to be part of this family, then you have to practice the piano. So he says, God called us to do this. And he said, anyone who rejects these instructions isn't rejecting an, a human authority. This is not Paul telling you this. This is God saying that this is, this is what it means to be a part of the family of my children. He says, they are rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So that's what Paul has to say about the most sensitive subject. But, but he doesn't stop there. He goes straight into the second most sensitive topic. He says, now you don't need us to write about loving your brothers and sisters because God has already taught you to love each other. In fact, you're doing loving deeds for all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. He says that when you, when you see people in need, you help them. You, you do loving deeds. You take care of your, your brothers and sisters throughout this whole region of Macedonia. That, and, and that's the report that Paul's getting back. He's saying, that's what I'm hearing about you. I'm sure it's true. And he says, he says, this is a good thing. And again, you don't need to be reminded of this. We've already talked about it. But he says, he says, um, that you're already doing this. Um, and he says, now we encourage you like before. He says, I encourage you to do even more. That the standard is not some, some cutoff. And if you, if you fall below, then, then you're out. It's how, how high can you aim? So Paul says, do even more. And the idea here is, and maybe some of you can identify this, identify with this, this, uh, this picture that Paul is, is drawing on. It's this idea of, um, in a family, sometimes there are, you know, a brother or a sister who just has a lot of bad luck. Or maybe they create their own bad luck. They can't hold a job. They're always getting in trouble. Maybe they've gotten in trouble with the law. That, that there are these family members and, and you kind of go, you know, this is very inconvenient. And at the same time, they're family. They're, they're somebody you have to take care of. You have to help out if you can. And maybe if you're, if you're fortunate, there is actually something you can do. Sometimes you can actually, you know, help, help change course or help them get out of a tough situation. Sometimes you just feel like all you're doing is putting a band-aid on the problem, but they're family. And so what do you do? You know, you have to do what you have to do. And so you help them out in whatever way they need because they're family. And Paul says, yes, now remember, you're in a new family now and everybody is a child of God. So when you see any child of God who's in trouble, who needs help, help them out. And he says, and just keep doing that more and more and more. He says, he says that that's what we should do. But then in verse 11, he says, he turns it around and he says, he says, that's what it's like to be in a family, but don't be a mooch. He says, he says that if you're in trouble, they, they will take care of you because they're your family. 
but don't get in trouble if you can possibly avoid it. Don't, don't uh, create your own trouble. He says, he says, aim to live quietly, mind your own business, and earn your own living, just as I told you. Don't, don't be a mooch. Don't depend on other people to take care of you just because you're, you're family. He says that this, this goes both directions, that you take care of people who, who need help, but at the same time, you do your best, you work as hard as you can to avoid needing their help. So he says, then you'll behave appropriately toward outsiders and you won't be in need. So you won't get in trouble with other people, you know, outside, outside of this family. You won't get in trouble with maybe, um, civil authorities and you won't be in need. You won't need to be bailed out and you won't need to be helped out because you'll be doing these things. So Paul says, these are the rules of the family. We, we, we love God and we love our neighbor. That these are, these are what, what it means to be part of a family. That our neighbor is a child of God. Or we have to assume that they're a child of God because, because we don't know what's in their heart, but we do know that God loves them. And so we have to assume that God has adopted them into his family. So, that's, that's what Paul is saying. That two simple rules, but, but they demand a lot from us. So Paul says that. Now I should, I should wrap, wrap it up by saying this. Um, these are the rules for once you're in the family. They're not, they're not how you get inside the family. Uh, I could have practiced piano at home if we had a piano and it wouldn't have made me eligible for my friend's family. That, that that was their family. I had my family. It's not the playing the piano that gets you in the family. But, but I knew that if something happened to my family and and if for some reason I found myself adopted into their family, I knew that piano was going to come with it. So um, that's that's the the way these rules work. They're not what gets you into the family. The reason the reason you're invited into the family is because Jesus loves you, and He invites you to become part of the family of the children of His Father in heaven. This is something that's that's available to you, and all you have to do is simply say yes. But if you do. Realize these are the family rules that we, we dedicate ourselves to God. We actually arrange our life in such a way that, 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 that shows, that, that demonstrates that this is where we have committed ourselves. And then don't take advantage of our brothers and sisters. Don't take advantage of them sexually. Don't take advantage of them, um, monetarily. And, um, do what you can to help people who have need. These are the rules of the family of the children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's letters that make it so clear what it is that you want from us, that, that you want of your children to, to love you and to love our neighbors, to treat them as your children. Lord, um, Paul said we need to learn these things, that they don't come naturally, that so much of our old life, our, our old circumstances clings to us, that, that we need to learn how to live into uh, the adoption we have as your children. So Lord, we pray you would continue to teach us uh, through your Holy Spirit um, and through the community of, of the children of your family. And we ask you uh, to, to um, help us to become not barely good enough, but as, as good as Jesus. Help us to make us, help us become truly Christ-like. We pray it in His name. Amen.